Just gone one o'clock on a Tuesday. That means it's time for the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. We've got a full house in the studio today. We've got uh, Andrea Teagle from the Daily Maverick and assistant editor First Thing. We've got John Stupart, editor at First Thing. Welcome, John. Hi. And we've got Greg Nicholson. Um, bit of a, I'm not quite sure what to call you, Greg. You don't really have a beat. Maverick of Daily Maverick journos, I guess, all over the place from... From the Oscar trial to Marikana to uh, a bit just of everything. Just keep talking. Yep, just keep going. <laughs> and uh, we've got a special guest with us today, the managing director of e-publishers, Chris Yelland. Uh, welcome, Chris. Hi, guys. Uh, I'm your host, Tilly Charolumbus. As usual, we'll we'll go through some of the big issues in the First Thing Daily Newsletter. You can get that at Daily Maverick uh, from the Daily Maverick website or on Cliff Central under the Daily Dose banner. Uh, and we turn to John and Andrea to tell us what were the big stories that we covered in the newsletter today. Okay, well, I mean, firstly is the badgers, the poor, horrible badgers who had to be culled. No, not really. I mean, that was, that was the sort of the last, uh, the last story. I think Burkina Faso, um, absolutely uh, still a big story started this, you know, with the, with the whole, uh, destabilization of the, of the government. And now we, we see the military taking power. They've been given an ultimatum by the African Union, which I think is normal procedure for the African Union, given its stance on illegal transitions of power. So we had um, a, a people's revolu- uh, revolution there. That, uh, that took place when it was on Friday. Yeah, well, and I mean, Simon Ellison actually had a thing on Daily Maverick mm. talking about how we, we shouldn't get too excited about it, you know, having the flavors of Che Guevara and Fidel Castro because this does look like it could, it, it could be a, a long-term thing, which also has implications for um, the African Union, who's now starting, mm. a, ironically, a, a new Zuma-based uh, security um, force called the African uh, Capacity for Immediate Response to Crises, or ASIC, mm. um, which is supposed to be this hybrid intervention force. Now, if this turns ugly, this could be the first prototype mission next year, possibly. I mean, nothing's been announced, and I, I think it's a long way off from that. But if that happens, I think we're, we're in for very, very interesting times in, in about January, February next year. I think uh, Simon made that point in his article. He said, you know, while uh, people's revolutions might be great, if we look to what happened in Egypt with the Arab Spring, what happens afterwards is what really counts. Mm. And you end up in a, in a situation where you're almost as worse off or as worse off as you were before the revolution happened. So, you know, hence this, the stance from the African Union, not really to get behind the support. And you've got military uh, intervention now and, and, you know, sort of factions within the military, they're looking to, to stake claim for leadership in Burkina Faso. Yeah. It's it's sadly quite quite the norm, I suppose, for 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 Africa's historical precedents for for um, unlawful changes in government. Uh, I dare say not even Africa, just around the world in general. It's a, it's a sad reflection. That said, uh, you know th- there is a possibility, and it's always a slight possibility that they go the way of Brazil, where okay, you clamp down on civil society, and folks like us would probably be dragged into the street and shot. But the 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 economy and general development actually goes through quite well by using technical and things like that. Um, well, you, rare, you might be but shot, but I, I don't think anyone would shoot Andrea because um, <laughs> <laughs> she's too pretty for that. Andrea, you had uh, an interesting fact for us today. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of um, twinsy facts um, for us uh, to do with identical twins. Um, having made a few who really didn't strike me as particularly identical, um, I found that firstly, identical twins don't have identical fingerprints. Um, which is pretty weird. Um, even though when they're first developing in the womb, they are identical, 
um, they after a while start touching things and moving around, and this results in different ridges developing on their hands, um, and they have unique fingerprints. So they can't commit, commit a crime and blame the other guy. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it's just as well, you know, in case the one and, decides. And to can we still call them identical? Well, actually, <laughs> though the the differences are, are much more extensive than than just their mm-hmm. fingerprints. Okay. Um, even though they have exactly the same DNA, um, as they start progressing, a lot of people notice that twins become quite different as they grow up. And part of the reason for this is that individual and environmental experiences actually impact the chemicals which determine which genes are switched on and which are switched off and how they behave, um, hmm. you know, leaving an actual imprint on the genetic makeup on, of the twins. Um, and, yeah, this can lead to quite um, distinct personality traits and interests, which is pretty interesting. And um, even, you know, some genetic epigenetic markers like this can be passed through generations and very specific circumstances. That's um, quite useful if you, I mean, the, the whole nature versus nurture debate always crops up at parties. And it's a nice way to sound, mm-hmm. you know, partially, at least partially informed about the whole thing to talk about the nurture side of it. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, interesting. And, you know, even if they're reared in exactly the same way, they're bound to have individual, you know, differences and in experiences, which, which definitely will result in epigenetic differences. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So. This this reminds me a little bit of that um, of that book that uh, we recommended uh, that Rebecca Davis was yeah, busy reading. Yeah, this actually reading. sparked my interest right. in, and and you know it was yeah. So about these these Welsh twins um, who were. Um, uh, yeah, give us the brief, the very brief summary. I can't of actually the, remember the their names, which I feel like is is throwing this a little bit. But um, these girls grew up. Um, they were they were quite peculiar. They were very very engrossed in their own world. Didn't communicate with anybody else. Which apparently is not actually unusual. A lot of twins have their own language. Anyhow, they, it sort of got worse as they grew older. And when they got to about 18, they staged um, a whole lot of petty crimes and ended up in a, you know, um, in, in a mental institution um, where I, th- I think we actually spoke about this on the radio show before. The one, the, the one um, informed the doctor in the car that in order for them to be free, um, one of them was going to have to die, and they decided amongst themselves that she was going to be that one. And she proceeded to have a, a strange heart attack or something completely unexplained um, and, and died on her sister's shoulders. And, yeah, Jeez. very, very odd story indeed. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Twins, always interesting. Yeah, always interesting. John, you've got um, uh, another fact from, that was in today's newsletter. Yes. Uh, quite yeah. an interesting fact about nuclear energy. Yeah, and I, ironically, as I was writing this, the power went off and uh, I had to switch <laughs> to my laptop. Which, uh, the irony that is. So I was just looking at uh, facts to do with nuclear power, given you know the, the, the whole exploration at least of 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 development of nuclear power in south africa um and looking at job creation for uh the construction of a of just an average nuclear power facility um and according to what i found it looked like it would generate between 1400 and three and a half thousand jobs for the construction of the uh of the nuclear power plant to begin with um and then it'll retain about 400 to 700 workers on a permanent basis um and then also if if um, if it if it matters and you're you're working in the energy sector, you tend to earn 36 to 44 percent more um, in your salary on your paycheck um, than the average um, sort of wage earning person in your in your area. I suspect that'll probably be higher in South Africa as well, given uh, where these plants are are, sus- are supposed to be built. Um, 
So, which is, I think, far up near Botswana, if I remember correctly. Um, so it was just very, very interesting mm-hmm. to see that the, the, the job creation part of it, um, quite interesting. Oh, and that the nuclear power apparently powers the, the Mars rovers. Although I did receive an email today from a very, very, uh, upset reader <laughs> pointing out that, yeah, that, uh, that solar power indeed actually powers most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and nuclear power only sort of keeps it warm at night, but which nu- I maintain nu- still powers it. <laughs> nuclear does p- uh, power, uh, you know, attack submarines, nuclear attack submarines. So, uh, yeah, it can be yeah. used for peaceful and non-peaceful purposes. Yeah. And aircraft carriers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have giant reactors that you have entire sort of, you know, have about a hundred sailors just sitting in the bowels of an aircraft carrier maintaining this nuclear reactor. And did you know that at one point the U.S. was uh, considering seriously developing a nuclear-powered aircraft? Now, can you imagine a, an aircraft wow. accident? Uh, <laughs> well, we're actually, uh, now that we're on the topic, I read something yesterday um, from, from one of the military sites that I read, and the U.S. military is actually exploring the development of nuclear batteries. Um, you know, actually, For iPhone users. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, it can only make them smarter, really. <laughs> but um, the, the nuclear batteries themselves would actually power things like, you know, your, your radars, ra- mobile radar s- systems, um, radios would last you know, indefinitely, I would say. But there's a problem with apparently uh, leakage, which I imagine is a problem with, with nuclear batteries. And most um, things. Um, <laughs> d- d- yeah, John, just on that and, and feedback from uh, from First Thing Readers. Uh, one day we're going to publish a book called Shit First Thing Readers yeah. Say in emails that you get. And we'll talk about those those crazy emails you guys get in response. But I guess if you are um, if you are mailing out to 70,000 people on a daily basis, you, chances are you're going to hit a couple of crazies along the way. Um, so there's a, there's a reason we're talking nuclear as well. Uh, last week, uh, Thursday, uh, E Publishers, of which uh, Chris Yelland is the managing director, and Daily Maverick uh, held a debate on nucle- nuclear energy. Uh, I attended that, and, and Chris was there as well to to host the the debate. We had some very interesting speakers there. I, say, I must say, I really enjoyed uh, attending the debate, and, and we should look to try and have a whole whole lot more of those. But uh, Chris, maybe you can take us through some of the highlights uh, where people can get. Um, you know some of the coverage and some of the uh, articles and, and material from there, and also your take on on the nuclear energy debate. Mm. Well, we had about two hundred and thirty people at the debate. It was an open public debate hosted by EE Publishers and Daily Maverick. Uh, we had four really good speakers, I thought. Uh, Mr. Oh, Ambassador Mbongo from uh, Nexa, the Nuclear Energy Corporation of South Africa, speaking really as a pro-nuclear uh, position. Uh, and he was actually in Russia with the Minister of Energy when the nuclear cooperation agreement, or whether it was a done deal or not, we still don't quite know. Uh, but he was in Russia uh, with the minister when that agreement was signed. Apparently he had to leave the room when it was actually signed by, uh, by the minister and the Russians. So perhaps he hasn't actually seen the full details. I'm still not sure on that. Uh, but he was one of our, our speakers. Uh, the other one was a guy called Des Muller from Group 5 Nuclear Projects. They are in the nuclear construction business. Uh, opposing uh, nuclear um, was Dirk de Foss, a writer for Daily Maverick and also writes for EE Publishers on occasion. Uh, and uh, Mr. Gravia Stein, Dr. Gravia Stein, an economist. Um, so we had really uh, interesting group of speakers uh, arguing the case. Three motions were put to the vote. Uh, the first motion was that we should stop nuclear energy uh, in South Africa or the nuclear new build program in South Africa forthwith uh, and, 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 and because it's really not appropriate for South Africa. That was the sort of extreme uh, position on the, on the left, you might say. Uh, in the middle was, uh, hang on, 
Uh, we must not proceed with uh, the nuclear new build. We need to do more homework. We need to study the economics, the financial implications. Can we afford it? We haven't done our homework correctly. In the meantime, we need to study these things before we make a final decision on whether or not to proceed. And then the extreme position, perhaps you can say on the right, was uh, we've done our homework. Uh, let's proceed with a nuclear new build program following a clean, open transparent, competitive bidding process as required by the Constitution and the Public Finance Management Act. We should go ahead with this. And this was put to the vote, and I thought the outcome was quite interesting. Which was? Well, certainly uh, the, uh, the motion number three, which is that we should proceed, uh, received more votes than the other individual motions. Uh, but I must stress that the, the audience was quite uh, heavily dominated by NEXA people, uh, and also by ESCOM people and certainly by engineering people. Mm. And, you know, engineers, mm. they love challenge. They love big <laughs> projects. It's the like having the generals vote on whether to have another defense deal. Yeah. So, so the audience was quite heavily, I would say, industry-orientated. Mm. And yet the outcome was interesting for me because if you were to look at the number of people who voted for motion number one, which is stop nuclear now, and you look at motion number two, which was uh, do not proceed with nuclear new build program because we haven't done the homework yet. If you add the two together, so the people who voted for either motion number one or motion number two were in fact the majority, and the, and the people who voted that we've done our homework, let's proceed now following a clean, open, competitive process, was in fact a minority position if you were to compare it to motion number one or two. So, And bearing in mind that this is an industry-dominated audience uh, of, uh, in, of an engineering sort of scientific kind, uh, I, I would say that in general, if you were to extrapolate this, and remember, this is a very informed audience. They've just heard four mm. uh, information-rich presentations, and that's the way they voted. So if I were to extrapolate this, I would say that South Africa is not ready to embark on the nuclear new build program now. But that's just my analysis, mm. and I am extrapolating, mm. and we, can only, we can't really uh, judge the, the, the wider South African view uh, from an audience of only 230 people. But the challenge is that we have energy and severe energy demands right now. So to delay the process or to delay uh, remedying or attempting to remedy the process is only going to cause us much more heartache down the line. I mean, Greg, you've been following the uh, the, the tribulations at uh, at ESCOM's plant um, with, with the problems with the silo. Um, you know, give us a little bit more background to what's going on there. I think Chris would probably. I'd be the person to really give the, the deepest background mm -hmm. there. But I think sort of one of the most interesting things there we've seen, we saw the Solidarity Union, Solidarity statements that there's this silo, one of three uh, coal silos that holds 10,000 tonnes of coal, um, develop a crack on Saturday. I think it was about 12.30. Within 40 minutes, that crack had spread and the thing collapsed, um, causing causing sort of a stoppage and a huge sort of cut in, in the capacity of the of the the station out in in Pumalanga and and since then we've seen sort of follow follow on um on Sunday we had um we had power cuts across the country but they were it was load shedding to sort of prepare the country for the week ahead and we could see more more sort of load shedding as 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 the week goes on but I think one of the biggest things the bigger things coming back to what you were talking about is how do we how do we sort of meet the the short term energy energy sort of needs and requirements? I'm not sure how we can do it, but 
but try to make sure we have all these all these uh, power stations operating at their best and the maintenance programs running smoothly. But I think Chris would be able to elaborate on that a lot more. Yeah, I, th- I think you're, you're right. There are no short-term solutions to increasing the supply of generation capacity because everything that can be done in this regard is being done. The short-term solution really involves improving the performance of Eskom's existing generation fleet, which is performing extremely poorly. The energy availability factor, which is a measure of the availability of Eskom's existing fleet of power stations, has declined from 85% to 75%, effectively taking off the grid about 4,000 megawatts, simply due to poor, poor performance and unplanned, regular, unplanned outages of Eskom's existing fleet. Uh, and, and that is the problem in the short term. We need to get uh, that energy availability factor back up to 85%. This would bring on another 4,000 megawatts onto the grid uh, that is already constructed. So that is the short-term option. The other short-term option, of course, is to manage demand for electricity. Uh, but I must tell you that South Africa's electricity consumption at the moment is at a seven-year low. The annual mm-hmm. consumption mm-hmm. in 2013, ending April 2014, is a seven-year low. So this has been caused by, of course, mm-hmm. supply constraints by Eskom, number one. Uh, number two, Eskom's very effective marketing campaign not to use its product mm-hmm. is paying off, and people <laughs> are not using its product. And also, if we want to grow as an economy, surely we need to be using more electricity in order to create, you know. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to grow your economy, you have to increase the supply of electricity because electricity is the engine of the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one can tighten one's belt and use less electricity. You can also turn away investors uh, who look at South Africa and decide that this is not the right place to invest because of the security of supply situation cannot be guaranteed and the future trajectory of the of the electricity price seems very disturbing. Uh, so this uncertainty, you know, is is a result of the growth forecast in South Africa being downgraded from four percent projected growth to recently has been downgraded to one and a half percent per annum. Combination of a number of factors, but certainly the supply of electricity and Eskom's marketing campaign and investors walking away is the kind of reason why growth is not as expected. And with more load shedding and more energy problems set to come, that's only going to affect our growth rate even more and our and our Yes, uh, and, and I must say there's a negative cycle. The less mm. electricity you use in South Africa, the higher the price of electricity mm. becomes. Mm. Uh, it's, it seems astounding, mm. uh, but that's the fact because they are – Fixed costs, uh, Eskom has to recover a certain amount of revenue on the base of a certain amount of kilowatt hours units sold. So if you sell less kilowatt hours to, re- to, to recover the same amount of money, you need to have a higher price per kilowatt hour. And that's an upward pressure on the price, and an upward pressure on the price puts further downward pressure on consumption. Mm-hmm. And you get into this negative cycle, which we somehow have to break out of through the increased supply of electricity, part of which has got to come by increasing the performance of the current power stations that are in South Africa. I'd like to get back to the nuclear debate because I think it's a, it's a very important part of the energy mix uh, and, South Africa and, and the existing one, and obviously going forward, um, it, it does have a role to re- play, whether that's third or fourth generation, that's the, that's the question. But just you know, ending off on the, on the current crisis uh, at the silo in Pumalanga, um, you know, we've got on the one hand... Uh, Eskom saying this is like a, you know, a, a one in a million 
thing that's happened, the silos collapse. And then on the other hand, you've got solidarity saying, you know, do we need to take what ESCOM is saying and, and, and uh, pull that through a bullshit filter? Or do we, uh, do we look at what solidarity are saying and saying, well, hang on a second, have, have they actually been lying to us? Look, we do have to be careful on the information that's been given out by ESCOM. Remember in 2008, uh, on national TV, on carte blanche, they asked the question, you know, is, are you running out of coal in your power stations? And Dr. Steve Lennon said, no, definitely not. You know, other problems. And then Sweet. Carte Blanche switched over to helicopters flying over coal stockyards, showing that the coal stockyards were empty. And they took an online poll, an SMS poll, and it turned out to be the biggest online SMS poll uh, in South Africa's history at that date. And the, by far the majority of the people who responded, because the question was, do you believe Eskom? And the answer was no. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, just recently they issued a press release at 11 o'clock at night on Saturday evening after, you know, uh, uh, 10 hours after the collapse of the silo. They issued a press release saying that there was a crack in the silo and no mention was made in the fact that the, the silo had collapsed. So we do have to be careful. Now, Solidarity has come out with a statement that Eskom knew all about the problems on this central silo that was suffering from vibration caused by the conveyors which are mounted on top of the silo. So that silo has a dual function. It, it receives coal from the conveyors, but it also supports a total of four conveyors. Now, when these conveyors run and operate, it causes vibration, and Solidarity says the vibration was too high. They'd been monitoring the vibration since January 2014, and they say they're hiding it. I asked Eskim. Eskim deny this completely. They say that Solidarity is confusing the matter. Uh, there was another silo that was taken out of service at uh, Madupi uh, you know, a year ago and that they're getting confused between the two. I went back to Solidarity who assure me that they are not confused. They know very well the difference between the problematic silo a year ago, which happened to be the coal stockyard silo and the central silo that collapsed on Saturday. And they say that the vibration was on the uh, central silo. We don't know the outcome about who's telling the truth, and time will tell. Uh, but uh, one, I think one does have to be cautious about all information received to make sure it's uh, credible. So in, in this nuclear debate that, that, that we hosted last mm. Thursday, I think um, a couple of interesting things came up, uh, came out of the um, discussions for me. And, and the one is that, um, which seemed sort of a little bit silly, but, you know, uh, but relevant, though, is because when you say the word nuclear, you think bombs and you think, you know, disasters and you think only really bad things. When in actual fact, nuclear as, a, as an energy source isn't, you know, is cleaner than a lot of, a lot of the other, um, a lot of the other energy sources that we're currently using in South Africa at the moment. Well, I don't think we can be against nuclear on principle mm. because, uh, you know, the sun, solar energy, the, the, the mm. stuff we get from these solar plants, PV, that is a nuclear reaction. Uh, in the sun, nuclear fusion is, is generating all the energy that we enjoy every day in, in sunlight. So in, we cannot be against nuclear in principle, but we can be against it in practice. Uh, and there one has to look at rational argument and not emotional, uh, faith-based uh, belief systems. We need to look at this matter rationally from an engineering and scientific perspective. And you're right. Uh, nuclear energy has numerous advantages and it also has certain disadvantages. Uh, and one's got to look at the application about where you put it, when it, where is it best suited. So, for example, nuclear is very appropriate in a coastal environment, which is close to the sea, because you need vast amounts of seawater for cooling purposes. It's certainly not suitable for Gauteng or Limpopo. 
uh, or areas where there is a shortage of water. Mm-hmm. It's also very suitable uh, for areas that are a long way away from South Africa's current generation sources, which are dominated by up in the north here, in Pumalanga and Limpopo, and uh, load centers like Durban. Uh, or, or KwaZulu Natal, uh, 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 Eastern Cape, uh, you know, around Port Elizabeth, uh, and 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 uh, in Cape Town itself, you know, are, are really good sites for a nuclear because mm. they they are far away from the load centres. They need local generation. They're close to the sea. They have mm. sea water. It's absolutely inappropriate to transport vast amount of coal down from the north of South Africa down to the coast. The cost of transport is astronomical uh, and would make a coal-fired power station totally uneconomical. So in those environments, nuclear becomes an economically viable option and certainly will help in terms of reducing CO2 emissions. It has disadvantages of high-level nuclear waste, but these things can and are being dealt with in many other countries of the world. I mean, we've had Cuba running for 30 years now. Is it 30 years that's been Yes, and, and, you know, probably, uh, you, you know, it's far more dangerous driving to work and from work at Kuburg uh, than it is working for a generation, uh, you know, uh, or two uh, at the nuclear site. Uh, in other words, what I'm really saying is when you're talking about risks and safety and things like that, you know, we take risks that are very, very, very much higher than working in a nuclear power station. We take them every day when we drive our cars. Uh, and, and so one has to look at this rationally and, and say that, in fact, if you were to look at the number of people that are killed per gigawatt hour of electricity generated by that technology, nuclear energy is by far the safest of all energy sources. And that considers the end-to-end use of this uh, production of this energy from mining through to delivery of the electricity out of the power station. Nuclear energy has a, has, a, has a proud safety record, despite Chernobyl, despite Three Mile Island, despite Fukushima. Uh, well, which we can really take a tidal wave for. I'm not, you know, that kind of... Uh, yeah, look, na- nature is not benign. Nature mm. is very dangerous. Uh, solar power is not benign. Today it was reported that a number of people have died on a solar power plant because a crane collapsed, uh, and, 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 and that would count towards the number of deaths mm-hmm. per gigawatt hour of electricity generated by solar. So, uh, you, you know, we have to look at this rationally, and if you look at nuclear energy in South Africa and abroad, well, I mean, South Africa, I don't know of a single death by radiation in South Africa over the last, since it was introduced. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of it myself. I feel that before... So before we even discuss all the risks, the the risks and the benefits, the advantages and the disadvantages, in South Africa we're, we're still caught up in the problem of and, and whether whether nuclear energy is suitable for for the country going forward, because this is going to be such a huge cost to the country, or you know or we're talking about big big money here, and there's the potential of corrupt corrupt deals being being done. I feel that that's sort of blocking us from from discussing this thing rationally before we actually discuss nuclear suitability. We, because because we don't don't really trust the government, and Pres- President Zuma seems to have taken quite a strong um, lead on this mm. on this issue. It's how, how do you feel that the that that political situation and our lack of faith in our political leaders is holding up this? Um, actually, looking at how feasible this is and having a real conversation uh, going forward about whether we want nuclear energy or not. No doubt, the trust levels of the public uh, in the procurement processes of government are very low. Uh, you know, from e-tolls to the arms deal through to Inkandla, uh, these are all signals that the procurement processes are, 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 are not up to scratch. 
Uh, but let us just put that aside for the moment. And let us just look at it, uh, assuming that there was a, 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 an adequate procurement process. I still don't think it's a clear-cut answer because one of the problems with nuclear is that it is a – this is large baseload power stations. It's very inflexible, and we're living in a very dynamic and fast-changing and uncertain world. So if you were to look at the Integrated Resource Plan for Electricity, which is a 20-year plan, if you look at the projections for growth on which that plan is based, you have the high road, the medium road, the low road. Well, the consumption of electricity in South Africa is way below the low road for the first three years. And if you get your projections wrong in the first three years, the impact in 20 years' time can be an error of 50, 60, 70% error in the amount of generation capacity you build. We need to be flexible in whatever plan we have. We need to adapt. We've seen... Growth projections in South Africa declined from 5% to 1%, you know, in a very short space of time. And this is the reality of the world we live in. So we have to embark on whatever we do has to, be, it has to take into account the reality of the need to be flexible. And nuclear is certainly one of the least flexible of all technologies. Wouldn't it be more flexible for us to have an oversupply? Because we'd be able to supply the rest of the region and maybe even other parts of Africa with that. So, I mean, isn't it better to err on the side of, me- of having more than having less, well, which is the current To current answer problem. that question, firstly, the demand for electricity by our neighbors is very, very low compared to South Africa's demand for electricity. You know, Botswana mm. has got a demand of about 600 megawatts. Mm. The whole of South Africa is 40,000 megawatts. So, just to... Put it and, and Zimbabwe, Namibia, Lesotho, Swaziland, Mozambique are no different. Uh, so our, our neighbours' electricity consumption is very, very low indeed. Uh, should we have an oversupply of capacity? Well, it's very, very expensive. If you have generation capacity that you have to pay for, and it's not producing electricity, you have stranded assets. Uh, the cost of electricity can skyrocket as it did in the past when we had a 40% surplus of electricity. There was a commission of inquiry. You guys are too young to even remember this. We had a, we had a 40% excess supply of electricity. We had a commission of inquiry which basically got rid of Eskom's management, put in new brooders into the job, uh, you know, who, who, who reduced the staff of Eskom from 60,000 to 30,000. No, that was in the 80s, right? Somewhere around there. Yeah. 80s, yeah. John Marie. John Marie. Uh, was brought in uh, as an industrialist uh, to come and sort Eskom out because as far as they were concerned, it was out of control. So the the question of, of uh, inflexible mega projects versus mm. this dynamic mm. um, economic environment that we work in was obviously mm. what Dr. Crevier was one, was one of the points that he raised uh, mm. at, the, um, at the debate. Um, but some of the other interesting bits that came out was that France currently has the lowest cost of electricity in Europe, and that's mostly powered by nuclear. Yeah. And Germany, which, to its credit, has 10% of its uh, of its um, nuclear, oh, sorry, its energy mix is is driven by renewables, has the most expensive, um, you yeah. know, energy in Europe. So you still have this very much and uh, of course high, high uh, fixed cost up front for nuclear, mm-hmm. and then a very Lower, a lower, manage, more manageable uh, variable yeah. cost of the product coming yeah. out afterwards. And if you were to ask, what is the producer of the cheapest power in electricity? What power station in South Africa produces that cheapest electricity? Many people will be surprised to know that it's Kuburg Power Station, mm-hmm. the nuclear power station, which by far 
produces the cheapest electricity in South Africa because the capital cost is paid off. There's no more mm. debt uh, on Kuburg. Mm. Uh, the running costs, the fuel costs are mm. extremely low. The maintenance mm. costs mm. are extremely low. Uh, and therefore, you're kind of printing money. So mm. once it's paid off, it becomes a, a very a cheap producer mm. of electricity. But, of course, to build it now, mm. the capital cost is very high. But if you were to look at the price trajectory of coal over the next 20 years, which, by the way, we have no idea what the price is going to be of coal in 20 years. Uh, but I want to tell you, if it's going up at the rate it's going up at the moment, uh, you know, coal could be the most expensive uh, form of electricity in, in, in 20 years. And the dirtiest. And, 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 of course, the dirtiest and the most mm. CO2 emissions, uh, the highest health effects, uh, more deaths per a kilowatt hour or megawatt hour of electricity than silos than, than that many collapse. silos that collapse, <laughs> you name it. Mm. Uh, so, so we mustn't just assume that what is a, a low cost producer of electricity now mm. is going to be a low cost of electricity uh, in twenty years, thirty years, fifty years, because a coal power station is designed to last for fifty years, mm. a nuclear power station lasts for sixty plus years. A renewable energy uh, system is typically designed to to last for twenty years. So you would have to build three of these. Uh, renewable energy plants in the same period that you would have to build one nuclear power station. But then what of um, carbon capturing techniques and things like that? I know at the moment, if I remember correctly, it was something like uh, it reduces efficiency of your average coal power plant by about 25%. Excuse me, if you uh, implement a carbon capturing uh, uh, sort of technology on your coal power plant. But apparently in the States they're developing um, new technology that that couldn't uh, might actually sort of negate any mm. deficiency um, in, in production or output of, of, of power. Uh, do you think South Africa would 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 even consider that? Well, certainly, uh, both Madupi and <coughs> Kusili power stations are being made for to be ready for carbon capture and storage. Uh, the plant is designed to have this technology in the future if they find the money to do it. And if it becomes uh, something that uh, needs to be done in terms of our reduction of CO2 emissions. So, uh, yeah, we're building these high CO2 emission uh, power stations and we have to think about the future, about what could be the pressures that come on South Africa to reduce its carbon emissions, including economic pressure. Mm. That if you do not do this, you will suffer economic consequences. We have to take this into account. Uh, That's why, for example... Uh, uh, flue gas desulfurization is being installed at Kusili and, and at Madupi. They're not installing it, but they have committed to the World Bank in terms of a World Bank loan that they will install it in due course when the power station is complete and the power station is being designed for this technology on, or, you know, when it's complete. So we have to take into account and be flexible enough to, to adapt to these. But I wouldn't write off nuclear on, on flexibility grounds because mm. – you know, you can build a nuclear program without committing to 9,600 megawatts with the Russians in one order. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kuburg was designed to have six reactors, but they only placed the order for two reactors. And that's what they built, and they stopped after two reactors because South Africa had a surplus of generation capacity. Had we signed up for all six reactors, it would have had disastrous consequences on the cost of electricity. So it's really important... I believe, not to sign a contract with the Russians or with the French or the Americans, uh, you know, to commit ourselves to six or nine or whatever number of reactors and lock ourselves for the next 50 years, no way out, and we get these reactors whether we want them or not. We have to procure in a flexible way, and I believe Kuberg has shown that we can do this. And not only that, if you progressively build reactors 
you get to know which suppliers you can rely on, and maybe you shouldn't place the next order with them. Uh, you you get to know uh, you, you get revenue from the one reactor in order to help finance the second one and the third one. So far better to build this on a progressive step by step basis than on a big bang approach and place one order with one supplier. Another thing that came up was um, the discussion around fourth generation uh, nuclear nuclear power, which the Chinese are busy. Uh, finalizing or getting to a commercially ready state. What's the difference between the fourth and the third generation? So the ones like so Kuberg is what we would classify as third generation now. The, no, the dinosaurs. Uh, uh, Kuberg is a second generation second reactor. Generation. The, the third generation reactors are really new on the market. Uh, there, there are some under construction, but there are none that are being completed yet. Uh, and and these are really, as was described in the debate by by one presenter, Javier Stein. Uh, these are massive. Dinosaurs. He called them dinosaurs or monsters. <laughs> These are the third generation reactors. These are the most inflexible one. The fourth generation reactors will be modular, will be smaller reactors, uh, perhaps thorium reactors, uh, which uh, reprocess fuel from conventional reactors in, into a much safer form of nuclear fuel. Uh, and, and in other words, uh, using the high-level waste spent uh, fuel from existing uh, power stations uh, to, to power safer uh, uh, safer reactors which have even safer uh, waste products. So the, this is the future, but you know, it's like your iPhone. Do you buy the phone now or do you wait for the next model that is coming out in six months' time? And if you wait for the next model in six months' time, there's going to be another model coming out which is even better. And you're kind of always deciding, you know, when am I going to do it? When am I going to do it? And, 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 and ultimately, you know, there's always something better on the horizon. Um, Chris, I'd like to, to wrap up the discussion on that. I mean, maybe give us your thoughts on, on you know, what is the short-term solution and, and where yeah. can we find, um, you know, the uh, material from the debate if people want to look up yeah. uh, okay. what happened. For South Africa, I believe we need two strategies. Number one, we need to diversify away from our over-dependence on coal as a primary energy source. It's very risky to generate 90% of your electricity from one energy source. Uh, we need all forms of energy, wind, solar, nuclear, hydro, gas, coal, you name it. Uh, they are all part of the solution that will have advantages and disadvantages. And the more you can have a diversified portfolio of energy, primary energy sources, the better you are in terms of risk. It's like having a balanced portfolio and a share portfolio. On the second thing, I believe we need to diversify away from a heavy over-dependence on Eskom as a monopoly electricity supplier. We need to introduce alternatives in order to manage risk. We cannot be in the hands of one uh, a supplier that's in financial difficulty, that's having technical problems. Uh, we, we need to have a competitive uh, energy environment uh, where we can benchmark different uh, generators and, they, and, and that their prices send, cannot simply be passed through to the customer uh, ad infinitum. We, we, we need to have a competitive market, in my opinion. In terms of the supply of electricity in the short term, we need to improve ESCOM's energy availability factor. Bring it up from 75% to 85%. That can be done in the relative short term and will add another 4,000 megawatts onto the grid. How can that be How, done in the short yeah. term? Yeah. Well, ESCOM have, uh, have taken on a new guy called Mike Rousseau. He comes from extreme, was the director of Extrata, which, as you know, was bought by, by, by Glencore. He comes from a mining and industrial background. He was the chairman of the Energy Intensive User Group. He's been brought in 
as a Mr. Fix-It to look at this. You know, Eskom perhaps have got tunnel vision in the sense that they've been doing things in a certain way for a long time and they need new views on the matter and they brought this guy in to actually help Eskom look at this energy availability factor and do something about it. Uh, let's hope he can do something about it. But that is, uh, that is what has to be done. It needs to have a new maintenance regime because the decline in the energy availability factor is because Eskom have been deferring maintenance instead of doing it by the book. In other words, they've been trying to keep the lights on at all costs. But the cost of keeping the lights on is now coming back to hurt us mm. uh, because these units that have deferred maintenance are now failing and they're getting unplanned maintenance. So step one, bring them the, the, improve the energy availability factor. Step two, Get Badupi and Kusili finished. That's another 9,000 megawatts uh, of, of generation capacity that can come on stream, plus the 4,000 from the energy availability factor. You know, that, that, that's bringing on 14,000 megawatts. Mm. This is like 30, 40% of South mm. Africa's existing capacity. That's what we've got to do, and we've got to do it fast. And the 1,000 from Angula as well. <laughs> yes, and Angula, and, the, and we've got to bring on new renewable energy sources, and we've got to look at gas, and we've got to look at nuclear, and, and, and all these different mm. options. Uh, you know, we have an energy-rich environment in South Africa. We do not have an energy problem. We have a management problem. That uh, I guess sums sums up the uh, the <laughs> troubles, the, the energy troubles in South Africa. Um, Greg, you've been following another story with the treatment action campaign, uh, following the plight um, of these guys to raise enough funding. The treatment action campaign, obviously, famous for being the driving force behind the government's adoption of of antiretroviral drugs for HIV positive uh, patients, and and making a severe a severe dent into the number of deaths. Uh, in this country under the uh, denialist era of the Mbeki, the Mbeki government. Um, how How is it going for them? I know they had a very important press conference that was going on today. Um, what's the latest on that? So essentially the, the Treatment Action Campaign has a funding crisis. To, to operate for the, the 2015-2016 year, they need to raise 35 million. Well, they need a total operating budget of 35 million rand. And I think currently they have seven million, so they've been going on a on a fundraising drive. And today they had Archbishop Archbishop Desmond Tutu come out in support and and to sort of say, please, can can you donate? Because if if we lose the treatment action campaign, this is the argument, we will lose lives. Um, so so they're aiming to raise ten million rand in November, which is that's their sort of first target, which I think they really really need to keep the organisation running. Um, on the weekend, they ran the Soweto Marathon. There was a bunch of TAC members as well as activists that support their cause who ran with banners and flags and things like that. And you could sponsor t-shirts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could sponsor either a runner or, or just sort of donate, donate for that. And they had, they had quite, uh, well-known, um, HIV activists also living with HIV who ran the, the 10 kilometer, the half marathon or the full marathon. And the, throughout the month, they're having different events mm. just like this, sort of getting different people to come and support them and, and to speak about their successes and, and the importance of having TAC around. And the whole, the whole month long of campaigning will culminate in an event on World AIDS Day, December 1st, where instead of going to, uh, the government, the official World AIDS Day, um, meeting, I think, which, which is in Bloemfontein, they're going to have their own one in Bloemfontein, Johannesburg, uh, where they'll have a number of speakers just, just to talk about the importance of the TAC and and the ongoing struggle to to improve the healthcare system and in particular um, 
improve access to anti antiretroviral drugs and monitor people on ARVs, um, improve access to TB medicine and and testing and mm-hmm. and other other so causes. A, a part of the problem sounds like people think that the HIV AIDS problem has been sorted. You know, we, we, a, ARVs are now available through through government hospitals, and basically the job for the TAC is done. But if we look at the number of people that are still dying. From HIV, um, and and again coming back to the management of of government resources mm-hmm. and services, um, it, it's still far from over. The TAC still yeah. has a lot of work to do. Well, well, I think I think one of, one of the things the TAC has realised from this, and and uh, one of its directors, Mark Haywood, who's also with Section Twenty Seven, um, has spoken about it quite a few times. Where he's realised now that. Relying on foreign funding for these things, uh, for, for, for ongoing, um, um, funding of an NGO isn't necessarily, necessarily sustainable because what happened essentially is the TAC, like a lot of our other organizations around the country, and there are a lot of organizations going through the same thing because what happened was when at, at, at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, um, when Tabo and Becky was, you know, throwing out all these different theories about the link between HIV and AIDS, and and we were hearing all these different al- alternative cures, and hundreds of thousands of people were dying because they couldn't get access to antiretrovirals. Um, foreign governments and foreign organisations stepped in to really support these um, activist and civil society organisations. What happened then is when when we had Zuma's administration come in after after a number of years of um, universal free access to ARVs. Is we saw sort of a plateau of new infections, um, and, and a reduction in the number of deaths. It was still, it's still extremely dire, the situation in terms of how many people are dying. But these foreign, these foreign entities saw, saw the situation as improving. And so what they've decided to do is, and, and most of them have announced this publicly, they're looking at other places around the world and other places on the continent saying, okay, South Africa has its situation under control now. And they, South Africa has to work on its own to continue trying to reduce the infection rate and uh, reduce the number of deaths related to HIV uh, related causes. So instead, they're going to give their money to other countries in Africa and other countries around the world. But what's happening now is all the systems that they helped support to, to build up and really and really save lives is all of these systems and organizations are collapsing. And, and so we have a whole bunch of organizations, the TAC is the most prominent of them, just scrambling for, for, mm-hmm. for survival. And we saw, um, a, a company that we both know, Noah's, Noah's Ox, mm. it ended up closing because of, uh, the US PEPFAR fund was, was withdrawn. And, and that's within the greater sort of NGO community mm. is that South Africa's status as a, as a developing nation has kind of progressed as well. Mm. So a lot of the, the, the overseas funders are pulling out. But I think what really, really you know drove the point home for me was um looking at a graph of africa's biggest killers right and this was a story that africa check ran with and and looked at since the the latest outbreak of ebola uh, at the beginning of the year up until the end of september um ebola had killed three and a half thousand africans and 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 plotted that against other diseases and according to, I think it was 2012 uh, World Health Organization um, estimates, then apportioned that and said, during that same period of time, how many people would have been killed by these other diseases? So we had 3,500 for Ebola. We had 25,000 for syphilis. 
in the same period of time. Malaria would have killed 150,000. Lower respiratory tract infections like pneumonia and influenza would have also killed 800-something thousand. And the biggest killer would have been HIV-AIDS with 850,000 people in the same time that Ebola had killed 3,500 people. Um, and of those 850,000 Africans that would have died, about 200,000 of those would have been South Africans that would have died in that time because HIV still kills about 300,000 South Africans every year, regard, you know, despite the efforts that, you know, the likes of the TAC have done. So, you know, you've got guys like Patrice Monsepi who have, you know, been very generous and donated a million dollars to the research, um, into the research uh, for finding treat, better treatment against Ebola. Um, but, you know, zero South Africans have died of Ebola since, you know, since, it, since it's but come we can, out. We cannot know. Ignore the investment required mm. into the treatment of Ebola because no, we can't. Uh, because it could become uh, the next mm. uh, yeah. major yeah. killer. So we, we, if we so can we nip can't. it in the bud now, mm. it's in, it's an investment mm. uh, well done. Mm. Definitely, but, but it does sort of put it into perspective as to yeah. as to the work that still needs to be yeah. done on HIV/AIDS. Yeah. But one of the interesting things I think that the TAC faces as well. The reason they're so prominent is because they stood up against Thabo Mbeki's administration and his policies on HIV-AIDS. That's, mm. that's why they're so prominent. That's why we know them. Um, they do a whole lot of other work, but that's what's, mm. that's why we know them and their famous HIV-positive mm. t-shirts. Yeah. Um, but now one, one of the, that also makes it more difficult for funding because often they come up against the government. So, so number one, um, they won't take government funding unless there is no strings attached. And then not, not, not even, I don't think they would even take government funding even if there was an agreement that there would be no strings attached mm-hmm. because there might be implied, um, um, perceptions, yeah. perceptions yeah. as, as mm-hmm. to them, them sort of siding with government. So, so it makes it very, very mm-hmm. difficult to get any sort of government funding. Number two, you're not going to get money from a guy like Patrice Motsepe because he's aligned to the ANC and has, and has heavy ties with the African National Congress. So, and, and the TAC is seen as a mm. somewhat of a sort of, sort of quasi opposition party, mm. almost. And then, so, so we have guys like that. Then other business people are also quite skeptical and quite, quite afraid to get involved and support some of these civil society organizations that really do publicly advocate, um, and campaign against, against the government. Mm. For example, the TAC right now is trying to bring down the, the free state MEC of health. Mm. They're, they're publicly campaigning. They're trying mm. to, they're trying to campaign mm. for him to be sacked. So sometimes as well, big, big corporations are also mm. scared about aligning with, with things like the treatment action campaign because, yeah. because, because then it, it yeah. might influence your ability to get a government contract or something like that. Meanwhile, don't forget the cost of HIV has on their businesses mm. anyway. You know, mm. I mean, it's such a short-sighted it's uh, extremely approach, short-sighted. Yeah, approach mm. within the greater context of that. Uh, it's almost time to wrap up. Uh, what we do is we canvas all our uh, guys uh, in the room to see what are they busy working on this week, some interesting things. Um, Andrea, you got um, some interesting things working on this week, some dance gender-based uh, articles um yeah i was interested dance, in gender-based articles. Oh, well, gender <laughs> yes, inequality inter- sorry okay. yeah i was i was thinking about um With dance sorry, gender still... imbalance in in dance i think that this is not explored very often and yet is if you if you want well it's you know, the other way around this is serious though um i was watching a show and you know it's very beautiful to watch and the guy is twirling the girl around and she's wearing very little clothing and he's you know, very much in the lead, just manipulating honest, her movements. <laughs> um, I was just thinking it's very interesting because she's very much the centerpiece. And is that a reflection of, um, you know, um, gender inequality in society? And to what extent in, in other forms of dance, perhaps, um, you know, is it reversed where the woman perhaps has had more opportunity um, 
you know, to lead and be um, prominent than in, than in other industries? And to what extent is she just sort of the trophy piece, um, you know, once again, just showing that the man's in control and the woman's there to look pretty? Um, so I, I think it's interesting, um, yeah, to the extent that art reflects life and sometimes influences it. So, you know, away from the stage, do we, do we still see those in, inequalities and do they even matter really in dance? I think a lot of people would argue that they don't. Um, Although it would be frightening to see if, uh, you know, Disney and what they do with Frozen and things like that is yeah. actually more progressive than, you know, refined cultural yeah, arts. Yeah, exactly. Inverted commas. Okay, guys, uh, we, we have to wrap up. We've been given the uh, the slit throat signal from our producer, Duncan. Uh, it was great having all of you in the studio today. Uh, I'd like to thank every one of you for making it in. And Chris Yellen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for more information on that nuclear debate, you can go to the EE uh, Publishers website uh, and get uh, some, there'll be some videos as well as some articles on that. Uh, thanks to John Stupart, editor of First Thing, Andrea Teagle and Greg Nicholson from the Daily Maverick. Uh, I'm Stilly Sharalambos and we look forward to hosting you next week again. Uh, tune in on cliffcentral.com or catch the podcast on Daily Maverick or Cliff Central.